Well, I want to invite you to turn with me to Acts uh, chapter 12 as we continue our journey uh, through the book of Acts. And I want you to think this morning about this question. When is the last time, if ever, that you witnessed something truly supernatural? Something out of this world. Something that you really couldn't explain through natural, logical, scientific explanations. When's the last time maybe you saw an angel? When's the last time you saw a demon? And would you recognize it if you did? There is a cosmic struggle that's going on between God and Satan, between the forces of good and evil, that has been going on since the day Lucifer was expelled from heaven. And that battle is taking place largely in the unseen realm. It involves God's angels, Satan's demons, fallen angels. And it all began when Satan was banished uh, from heaven. In our 9 o'clock hour, we made brief reference here to Isaiah chapter 14, and uh, where we read that it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken to the nations. As I said, in the context, it's referring to the future destruction of Babylon and, and the destruction of Babylon's king, but this passage has long been seen as an allusion to the fall of Satan. Uh, and the fact is, uh, really, for many, many centuries, uh, those who worship Satan have considered Lucifer to be Satan's name. We read on, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That's what Satan did in heaven. He wanted to have heaven for himself. He wanted to take God's throne, usurp that throne, and take over the created realm. When he couldn't have heaven, God banished him to the earth, and he said, well, I'll have the earth. Uh, the word uh, Lucifer that's uh, used there in Isaiah 14, 12 is Halel. It means morning star, shining one, bright star. And notice he's the one that weakened the nations. This world did not become a better place when Satan was cast down here. It became worse. He approached Adam and Eve. We see the fall of man and the curse of sin upon all of creation. The image of God and man was tarnished, corrupted because of the fall. In a parallel passage in the prophet Ezekiel, we read, Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. I mean, how dare somebody try to come against the, the almighty creator of the universe? How great thou art. We just sung about it, right? Uh, you become a horror. And as we also talked about in our nine o'clock hour, someday Satan shall be no more. Uh, when Satan was banished, he became the god of this age. Uh, Paul calls this the present evil age in Galatians chapter 1. And the whole world, John tells us, is under the sway of the wicked one. This really is the devil's playground. And as I so often talk about, depravity is not a uh, self-correcting disease. It doesn't get better with time. It gets worse with time. Kind of like a gallon of milk that you forget to put back in the fridge and leave out on the counter, right? Uh, if you come back to it several days later, 
it's not going to be any better. It doesn't, you know, it gets worse, right? Thousands of years later, after Satan was banished to the earth, the cosmic supernatural battle between God and Satan rages on. And Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians when he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're going to come back to those terms here in just a moment. But there can be no doubt that there's an unseen cosmic war going on between the forces of good and and evil. There is an unseen element to the battles that we face. It's a very real battle. It's a very powerful thing. It's, it's very serious. And yet, the average believer either ignores it or completely is unaware of it. In our continuing review and historical walk through the early years of Christianity, we come this morning to a great passage in Acts chapter 12. It's a documented account of a supernatural event. It's one of those times when the supernatural battle comes out from behind the invisible shroud and shows itself. Now, before we dive in, and I can't wait to read that passage, it reads like a great short story, a great bedtime story to read some of your kids, Acts 12, 1 to 19. But before we dive in, I want to make sure we define our terms. So I want to explain the difference between a divine intervention and a supernatural event. So let's talk about a divine intervention first. Let's say, for example, that you are driving through Sedalia down Platte Avenue here in front of the church. Okay. And you're in a hurry, so you're, you're pushing the speed limit. Let's say you're going 30, 35, even 40, which you should not do in this residential area. I think the posted speed is 25, right? But you're in a hurry. And so suddenly as you're racing down Platte Avenue, the car in front of you slows down and comes to a complete stop. And moments later, as you're beginning to resume your route, a huge tree falls over up ahead and lands right where you would have been had you not been delayed you realize that had the car in front of you not stopped, you would have been crushed in the rubble beneath that huge tree. God obviously has plans for your life. He's not through with you on earth. He divinely intervened using natural means to protect you from danger. That's divine intervention. We can think of hundreds of examples of this kind of thing, both hypothetical and real. But it's, it's kind of helpful to remember the concept of divine intervention because it helps us keep things in perspective. And I don't know about you, but I'm very impatient sometimes, and I, I'm always so busy, always got something to do, always running after the next thing, and, and sometimes unexpected things happen. And to my shame, more often than not, I get you know frustrated or angry or, oh, why this, why me? And I often don't stop to think about, well, you know what? Maybe there was a big tree that was going to fall and crash on top of me. And uh, God intervened divinely to prevent that from happening. So here's how I would de define divine intervention. When God accomplishes his purpose through normal earthly means. God, who's always doing something, he's got a plan, he's working out his plan. We don't always have access to that. We're not privy to that. We're not entitled to know why God's doing what he's doing. Obviously, he reveals to us in his word things that he's doing. We understand the big picture. But in terms of the day-to-day -day details of life, you know what? 
it all comes down to faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. And we need to remember that God sometimes is accomplishing his purpose through normal earthly means, and that's divine intervention. Now, a supernatural event, on the other hand, is quite different. So if we go back to that same illustration, let's say uh, if I'm driving along Platte Avenue, going faster than I can, and all of a sudden my car is supernaturally lifted into the air some 20 feet, just floats up into the air. The tree falls, God transports my car over the tree, and I land gently on the other side of the tree, defying all laws of gravity and force and energy, being witnessed by bystanders, mouths agape, thinking, what in the world just happened? What is this, you know, chitty chitty bang bang or something, right? Well, that would be a supernatural event, a supernatural event. A supernatural event is when God accomplishes his purpose through some miraculous e event that defies natural laws. Now, not all supernatural events are observable, like my made-up illustration. Every day throughout the globe, there are supernatural things taking place in the unseen realm, and only rarely does God allow us to see it. But sometimes... God does allow us to see the supernatural. We see, you know, hundreds of examples throughout human history in God's Word, right? I mean, the Red Sea parting, that was a supernatural event. I mean, the Pharaoh and his army, they didn't expect that. I mean, the children of Israel didn't expect it either. Um, you know, we, we see these types of things. And in Acts chapter 12, we see several amazing, and the key is observable, supernatural things uh, taking place. So let me put it in context, and then we'll read through it. And then I just, nothing fancy this morning. We're dealing with a historical uh, narrative here, not an epistolary literature where the principles are just spelled out for us doctrinally. This is, a, you know, a descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive, but we can learn some things by observing what we see in the book of Acts and draw some timeless principles from this passage. But... Another year has gone by uh, since what we looked at last week when Paul and Barnabas arrived in Antioch. It's now the spring of 44 A.D., so the church is now 11 years old. Uh, Claudius was the Roman emperor at the time, having replaced Gaius. Uh, Herod the king was in power in Jerusalem, and this would be Herod Agrippa, whom Gaius had appointed king over Palestine in 37 A.D., so roughly four years after Christ's crucifixion. Uh, Herod Agrippa had Jewish blood in his veins and consistently sought to maintain favor with and support of the Jews over whom he ruled. And he's going to take center stage here at the first part of this chapter. But as the Jews became increasingly troubled by the Gentiles being welcomed into the fold by the Christians, remember Jew and Gentile in one body, Herod began to take advantage of this opportunity to please the Jews by executing Christians. And he executed the Apostle James, the brother of John, at the beginning of chapter 12. And uh, this would be the second major martyrdom that we saw in the early church, the first being Stephen in Acts chapter 7. So the, the persecution of, of Christians is now swinging from religious, which was why Stephen was stoned, remember? He had all those kind and warm and fuzzy friendly things to say about the Jewish leaders. You know, something about vipers or something, I think. Um, 
And so they stoned him. But now it swings from religious to political. From the emotional and reactionary stoning of Stephen by the Jewish leaders to the premeditated execution of James by a Roman-appointed government official. So 11 years into the church, things are really beginning to heat up. In fact, in the coming weeks, we're going to see more persecution. I'm going to talk about persecution, which is very relevant for us today. And by the way, persecution has never stopped. For 2,000 years, our brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe in the present church age have faced persecution. We've been really blessed here in America because only until recently have we started to see an uptick in uh, persecution for our faith. But Luke tells us in verse 3, which I'm about to read, that when Herod saw the favorable reaction to the execution of James, he said, wow, I'm on to something here. He had like a bloodlust, and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to arrest and, and martyr or, or murder Peter too. So let's, let's pick up the story there in uh, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. That was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. I'm going to explain what the four squads are in just a moment, but you can get the sense that Herod understood from what had already happened in the early days of the church and, of course, what happened with the Lord Jesus himself, that when you take someone as prominent as Peter, you've got to be careful. Maybe something supernatural might happen here, and indeed it did. Verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer... Constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up. I want you to get this picture. This is an angel. So by definition, we're dealing with supernatural, right? Uh, angels are spirit beings. Uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we should be careful when entertaining strangers because we might be entertaining an angel and not know it. And there are several passages, Old and New Testament alike, that clearly speak of angels taking on human form. So that's when one of those examples when the supernatural breaks through the realm of time, space, and matter and becomes visible. And sometimes we don't know it. So here you've got an angel tapping Peter on the shoulder and saying, Wake up! He raised him up and said, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him. Now listen, and did not know that this was done by that what was done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. Peter had just had that famous vision in chapter 10 as God prepared his heart to deal with Cornelius, God often reveals things through visions, and Peter is thinking, this must be a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. Just think of the number of times the supernatural happens here. Right? I mean, this reads like a movie script. 
And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. You know, his job's done. <laughs> and when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from, the, from all the expectation of the Jewish people. In other words, I was minutes from death, a few hours at the most. And God, re God supernaturally rescued me. Now, here's where it starts to get funny. Any good Hollywood script is going to have a, a com comedic element. I don't mean to denigrate Scripture. This is the Word of God. But it does read like a, a script. It would make a great movie. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, uh, whose surname is Mark. Uh, this is the same place that they gathered in the upper room before Jesus was betrayed, the same place they gathered in Acts chapter 1 for the prayer meeting to decide who was going to replace Judas. It's kind of a key figure. Um, uh, where many were gathered together praying. So here the church is praying for God to protect Peter. It didn't look good. I mean, it didn't look good. They'd just seen uh, uh, James murdered. Peter's in prison, heavily guarded. He's about to be murdered himself so the church does what the church can do which is pray and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate a girl named Rhoda came to answer and when she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness she didn't open the gate <laughs> but first but but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate so she's just so ecstatic that God had answered their prayer she leaves Peter standing there in the cold. I don't know if it was cold or not, but standing there outside the locked gate and runs back, hey, guys, guess what, right? But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. And they said, oh, it's an angel. So by the way, sometimes you see an angel and it's an angel. Sometimes you see an angel and it's not an angel, okay? Um, but, I mean, this is such a, an indictment. I mean, there's so many principles and ob observations we could make here. But, you know, here the church is praying for Peter to get released. He gets released, shows up at the prayer meeting, and they say, don't bother us, we're praying for you to get released. You know, it just doesn't. But how often do we do that? You know? It's like the old adage uh, about the, ch the church in a farming community that had suffered many, many months of drought, and the pastor said, let's come together and pray for God to bring rain. And... So they show up for the prayer meeting, and only one person brought an umbrella. So who, whose faith was the strongest, right? Um, so Peter continued knocking, and they, when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished, I guess so. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, go tell these things uh, to James and to the brethren. And he this is not James that, that had just been killed, by the way. This was the James, the Lord's brother and to the brethren, and, uh, and he departed and went to, to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. What did you do with him? Did you leave it unlocked? What'd you, where'd you, you know, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death, and he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So let's, uh, let's pick it up here in... Verse 3, four squads of soldiers Herod put in charge of guarding Peter. Four soldiers made up each squad, so we're dealing with 16 soldiers involved in this protection or guarding detail. Uh, they guarded Peter in six-hour shifts so that he wouldn't escape, as he had done previously, by the way, going back to Acts 4 and 5 with Peter and James. 
um, I mean Peter and John, and evidently two of the soldiers were on each shift chained themselves uh, to Peter, and the other two guards on each shift were outside his cell uh, door. Um, now what happens next is nothing short of supernatural. Um, uh, he, he, let's look at some elements of the supernatural from this story. I think I've got seven here, just general principles. Um, first of all, impossible predicaments call for supernatural solutions. The next time you face an impossible situation, stop and remember that that's precisely the opportunity for God to come in and do a work. If it wasn't impossible, you could handle it yourself. But it's only when it's impossible that it drives us to our knees, drives us to a place of trusting God. I call these things, the testing of our faith, I call these things little sort of pop quizzes. You know, every now and then God brings something into our life to exercise our faith. When everything's going along just fine, you're healthy, making the mortgage payment, kids are healthy, your kids are obeying. Obviously, you don't have teenagers, but let's say you have younger kids, they're obeying, and everything's going fine, you, you know, you might tend to not think about the Lord as much. But when something impossible happens, a crisis, a tragedy, a difficulty that's beyond your control, that's when we turn to the Lord. Now, we should turn to the Lord every day we walk by faith. But God can and does intervene supernaturally in the affairs of mankind every day, but he most often does this when his purpose cannot be accomplished through natural means. I mean, Peter was in an impossible situation. Sixteen soldiers in shifts, chains, 24-hour watch, multiple layers of security. But impossible predicaments call for supernatural solutions. We should always be aware of and sensitive to the supernatural. But never more than when we find ourselves in an impossible predicament. So the next time you find yourself in an impossible predicament, you just say, okay, God, show yourself. I know that I'm so used to living in the what you can see and feel and hear and smell and taste, the realm of the natural. But God is much bigger than that. And we need to be reminded of that. And then we see how constant prayer was being offered uh, for him. Prisons are no match for prayers. And the Christians were praying urgently that, that Peter would be saved. And so I think another principle we can draw from this historical account is that sometimes the believer's only available weapon is prayer. Now again, this passage, I think the reason I was so invigorated when studying this this week is that you know, it really speaks to my heart and in, indicts me. And I'm a kind of a guy that likes to solve problems. And sadly, I, you know, I sometimes have to try two or three different things before I think, okay, wait, let me stop and pray about this. You know, let me just, let's just pray. The Lord will, you know, will work this out. So if you wonder why you haven't witnessed any supernatural activity firsthand, or maybe not for a while, how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Prayer, by definition, takes us out of the realm of time, space, and matter and catapults us into the realm of the supernatural. That's the essence of prayer. It's our lifeline to God. It reminds us that this earth is not our home. It gets us thinking beyond the constraints of the natural and helps us focus on the supernatural. It allows what we cannot see to overshadow and eclipse what we can, when normally it's just the opposite. And so this is especially helpful when we find ourselves in you know, difficult 
circumstances. So, verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out for execution, another side note, I could have written 10 or 15 different observations in terms of principles, but I think we need to remember sometimes God waits until the last minute from our perspective, right? But God's timing is always perfect. Did you know God's never late and He's never early, right? So when Herod was about to bring him out for uh, execution... Peter was bound with chains. The guards before the door were keeping the prison. And Peter was was sleeping. Now that's kind of interesting, isn't it? The night before his execution, he's sound asleep in his cell. How could he sleep so soundly when God had just allowed James to die? Well, some people have pointed out that, of course, Peter often had a record of sleeping when he should have been praying. Um, in the garden, for example. But this was not a problem uh, of, of, of lack of a faith. On this occasion, God wanted him to sleep. And he didn't fear his life because, you know, he had been rescued. He's gotten out of similar predicaments in the past. He trusted God. He'd seen incredible miracles walking and talking with Jesus for three and a half years. You know, if he can turn water to wine, calm the sea, raise the dead, these prison guards are really no match for him. Obviously, the scripture doesn't give us a glimpse into what was in Peter's mind, but I just find it interesting uh, that he was sleeping and again bound between two soldiers. Normally, the Romans would chain a prisoner by their right hand, according to historical evidence, to the guard's left hand. So you can picture a guard here and chained by his right hand. But Peter, according to the text, was chained on both hands. Herod wanted to make sure Peter didn't get away. But God wanted to make sure that his, he got the glory and people recognized this for what it was, a supernatural event. So then an angel comes, an angel of the Lord. Uh, some people have speculated that this might have been Christ. Uh, in the Old Testament, angel of the Lord could in fact be a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ. I don't think there's any reason to think that here. The angel of the Lord this is a special messenger of the Lord who comes and uh, does certain uh, tasks for the Lord. We saw that in the early days of early parts of the Gospels with announcing the birth of Christ and so forth. But a light illuminated his cell and the angel instructs him to get up quickly and change just fell off of his hands. I mean, that's a, that's a miracle, right? Um, and Peter's guards slept through the whole thing. That's a miracle. So another principle here that I see throughout Scripture is that supernatural activity almost always involves angels. So in that cosmic realm that I talked about at the very beginning, there's angels and fallen angels. We're going to talk about those in just a second, but one-third of the angels fell with Satan. So we've got twice as many good angels as bad angels. Actually, more than that, because some of the bad angels are actually imprisoned right now, permanently. Um, but uh, the, the way in which the, the unseen realm battles take place involves these messengers. That's why we see demonic activity, a la Ephesians 6, and we see angelic activity here. And as I mentioned, the Bible says sometimes we might be talking to a person in physical form, and, and they might be an angel. And, uh, and they, we may not realize it. So I always like to ask this question when I'm speaking about this type of supernatural uh, stuff, just for my own curiosity. But how many of you here in this room feel like you have had an encounter with an angel. 
best you can tell. That's good. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I think uh, I think I know I have, uh, and uh, multiple times. Um, so, uh, what are angels, and where do they come from? So, in my uh, latest book, I kind of go through a whole chapter on on this, but just a quick summary here. First of all, angels are not the souls of deceased people. That's uh, certainly not biblical at all. It's a terrible myth. Um, uh, angels are created beings. They have their own class, and if you look at angels, they fall into one of two categories. You've got unfallen angels, what we call angels, and then you've got fallen angels, what we and the Bible calls demons. Um, now, one-third of the angels are fallen demons, as I mentioned. Two-thirds are unfallen or angels. Let's take a look at the unfallen angels, what I call uh, the good guys. Okay, These are the good ones. These are the ones that God uses as messengers to help us. In Scripture, we see several different kinds. Obviously, the archangel is the highest ranking. Michael is the only one mentioned as the archangel. Then you have chief princes, according to Daniel chapter 10. Uh, this is another group of superior angels. Uh, Mike, Michael is a chief prince, but the highest or foremost chief prince because he's the archangel. Then you've got special kingdom messengers like Gabriel. And then you've got the cherubim and seraphim. Uh, in English, we would say cherubs and seraphs. In Hebrew, you add the im to the end of it to make it plural. So uh, uh, these are you know, angels of indescribable power and beauty, and they're, uh, they proclaim God's glory. Satan, we know from Ezekiel 28, was a cherub before he fell and became the prince of demons. Then if we look at the fallen angels, <clears throat> these are the bad guys. And we could take a, a closer look there, and we see some more biblical information. First of all, some of these demons are loose and active, as we read about in Ephesians uh, chapter 6. Some of them are imprisoned. And if you remember the story of Jesus and the uh, Gadarene demoniacs, uh, the demon there begged Jesus that he would not send them into the abyss, the prison, um, the bottomless pit but instead would send them into the herd of pigs. And they just, then, which he did, and then they ran and did a swine dive off of the uh, cliff. But anyway, I know, sorry. So sometimes my dad jokes just uh, leap out, leak out. Uh, but we need to understand that of those that are imprisoned, some of them are temporarily imprisoned and will be released at the midpoint of the tribulation that we talked about in our 9 o'clock hour, uh, to help Satan in this final three and a half years of the battle leading up to Armageddon. But others, the ones who left their proper domain and cohabited with women, according to Genesis 6, and Jude 6 also describes this, and 2 Peter 2 also describes this, there can be no doubt about what happened in Genesis 6, even though some people kind of gloss over it because it's hard for us to imagine, but it happened. And those are permanently imprisoned, awaiting the eternal lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. But it's these loose and active demons that we're talking about in terms of seeing the supernatural. Uh, there are certain kinds of demons that we understand from, uh, you know, uh, the New Testament. First of all, Satan is the prince of demons or ruler. That word prince can also be translated ruler from the Greek, meaning the head demon, the one in charge. And then as we read about in Ephesians, we've got principalities, which is the highest rank. And we've got powers, those also that have authority. We've got rulers of darkness. They have special rulership and, and sort of uh, responsibilities in the present age. And then we've got the spiritual hosts of wickedness, which are 
particularly evil demons. So the fact of the matter is there's a dark side to the supernatural. Demonic activity did not cease with the time of Christ, and nor did it cease in the early days of the church. It's getting worse and worse. 2 Timothy 3.13, evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Uh, in fact, I don't think I... Yeah, I do have this verse. I just Sometimes I get ahead of myself. I think of verses while I'm speaking that I've also thought of when I was putting this uh, together. But if you want proof that the demonic activity is still very much at play in this present evil age, Galatians 1.4, listen to what Paul said in 1 Timothy 4. In the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Why? Giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. If demons aren't active today, how can that uh, be? James, the Lord's brother, tells us this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. And then we see, as the verse I just mentioned in 2 Timothy 3.13, that evil men and impostors are getting worse and worse. So the next principle then is demonic supernatural activity is pervasive. The unseen forces of evil are real, they're powerful, they're everywhere, and, and we best not interact with them without the power of Christ going before us. And remember how Paul described this battle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these demonic forces. So if we get back to the account of Peter, verse 7, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. When things begin to happen that should not happen, you know you're in the presence of supernatural activity. Where did the light come from? I mean, did someone flip a switch? They didn't have electricity. Um, a light, like a spotlight, was shining. There weren't any flashlights in those days either. There's no mention of a torch of fire. It's not like someone came to check. It wasn't a shift change or anything. The cell was just illuminated. And Peter was able to see what he was doing well enough to get dressed and put his sandals on. And then the chains fell off. I mean, how did that happen, right? I didn't see, as we read this account, any reference to a hacksaw or bolt cutters or a blowtorch. Right? Who took off the chains? Right? When things begin to happen that should not happen, you know you're seeing supernatural activity. The angel said to him, all right, well, who's doing the talking? What's going on? Luke tells us an angel stood beside him. But where did this angel come from? Peter said, this can't be real. I must be dreaming. Because these kinds of things don't happen. Exactly. It's supernatural. And then, as they're leaving, the gate opened to them of its own accord. I mean, that's like something out of a you know, creepy Scooby-Doo episode or something, right? You know, you can just see them walking along. They come to the skate and then they, they walk out, right? I mean, where were the guards? Nice job, guys, you know, all 16 of you. And he just walks right out. So supernatural activity explains the unexplainable. Supernatural activity explains the unexplainable. When you have no explanation, when things don't make sense, when there's no place else to turn, Look for the supernatural. You might just see it. And then we see in verse 15, you know, they say to Rhoda, you're beside yourself. I mean, in essence, uh, you're, you're, you're out of your mind. 
it's, it's a word that's used, uh, manamai, it's used only five times in the New Testament. It's the same word the Jewish leaders used to describe Jesus when he said he was God. You're out of your mind, right? I mean, Peter can't be standing at the gate because Peter's in prison. But aren't you praying for him to be released? Yeah, yeah, but don't bother me with the details. Just let us get back to our prayer meeting, right? Supernatural activity is often hastily dismissed or explained away. Supernatural activity is often hastily dismissed or explained away. There's a certain normalcy bias that causes people to reject anything that doesn't make natural sense. It's a cognitive dissonance that we cannot accept, so we explain away supernatural events using natural explanations. And this is what has happened in the church over the last 120 years. We've seen a marked shift toward liberalism in the church where people say what the Bible says is true can't be true, so we're going to reject it. It can't be a global flood. It can't be a literal six-day creation. It can't be a parting of the Red Sea. It can't be a giant fish that housed a, a resident for three days. You know, it can't be a divine virgin birth. It can't be a deity of Christ. You know, first thing you know, the gospel is obliterated and the whole Bible is thrown out the window. Frankly, that's where a lot of churches are today. They're just social clubs. They're remnants. They're or rather relics, not remnants. They're relics of what used to be the truth. Supernatural activity is often hastily dismissed or explained away. And number seven, or I'm sorry, I want to give you a couple of passages here. So Peter continued knocking. When they opened the door, they were astonished. Why? Because that can't happen. Wow, this can't be happening. But Peter says, go and tell. Go and tell. When supernatural activity does happen, it's quite a stir, right? Uh, in fact, that's what Luke tells us in, in the, what happened with the uh, soldiers. There was no small stir. See, supernatural things happening, it's worth telling. If your car was lifted up, floated 20 feet in the air, and you know another 50 feet down and then 20 feet back down, you'd, tell, you'd talk about that, I think. Um, you talk about it. And then finally, supernatural activity always serves a purpose in God's plan. Supernatural activity always serves a purpose in God's plan. It obviously helped Peter avoid death. God was not through with Peter. Uh, he had not written his epistles yet. He didn't write those till the 60s, not long before his death. God wanted to reveal more truth in his written word through the pen of Peter. Peter has a lot of other things that take place in, in, in the historical record. Um, so don't ever let circumstances, don't ever think that circumstances can thwart God's plan. They can't. We think they can, but that's just an opportunity for the supernatural to rear its head. So do you want to see the supernatural? Well, I would say open your spiritual eyes. And then you can see what's unseeable. And sometimes, by the way, and this gets back to prayer, it helps to be able to see the unseeable to close your eyes. It's counterintuitive. We, we, normally we want to open our eyes so we can see, but you want to see the supernatural, close your eyes, get along with the Lord, and say, Lord, I, I, want, I want to be reminded of your presence today. So it's not just when you're facing an impossible predicament. That's one principle. But the supernatural can 
show up at any time. Sometimes God does it just as an encouragement to remind you, I'm here. It's not always personal. Sometimes it's global. It's, sometimes it's corporate. I mean, supernatural things can take place in many different contexts. But let's never forget that we can see the supernatural if we'll just look for it. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this reminder, this fascinating and, and, and really encouraging and exciting story from history. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would forgive us for the times when we fail to acknowledge your presence and your supernatural power, power in our lives. And uh, <clears throat> Lord, we pray that uh, we, we just confess our lack of faith uh, as we fail to see how you're moving in and through the church and around this world. And so, Lord, we, uh, we do pray that uh, we would be emboldened by the teaching of your word today, strengthened in the faith, reminded of your goodness. And most of all, Lord, we just pray that if there's one within the sound of my voice who doesn't know you, that today might be the day of salvation, that like simple, a simple child and childlike faith, they would come to the place where they recognize they're a sinner who needs a Savior, and that only Jesus, your Son and our Savior, can forgive their sin and give them the gift of eternal life, and they would place their faith in him. And we pray all this in his precious name. Amen. Let's stand as we close out our service.